This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your hosts for today are Summit Racing's LS Engine experts, Brian Nutter and Mike Schmidt. Here we go. Hey everybody, it is Brian and Mike here from Summit Racing. Howdy. Mike, you want to introduce yourself? I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm with Summit Private Brands. Been here for a long time. A long time. Uh, I myself <clears throat> have been with Summit for about seven years now. And we wanted to talk a little bit about Project 1000 today. What it was, what it is, and what it will be. Okay. The original idea between Project 1000 was... Number one, it never was supposed to be called Project 1000. Right, Some, we just threw just that a, name at it. A, <laughs> we knew it'd make way more than a thousand. Right, yeah. right, right, yeah. right. So Project 1000 was supposed to be a kind of a grocery list of cool racing engine parts. That All Summit branded parts up out of Summit branded Summit shelf. everywhere yeah. we could. And if Summit brand did not have anything in particular, you know, we just used the stuff that, you know, from our vendors. Uh, a good example of that was the VS Racing Turbos that we used, mm-hmm. right? We tested all of this over at TrickFlow. They got a couple dynos over there. They, they do a ton of validation work. The, the first question uh, from Drag Drive Repeat is, 5th Gen Camaro SS Automatic, what performance pieces would you like to use to make it run consistent 12 O's and 10 O's in the quarter mile? Drag and Drive would be the driving style. Drag and drive is a cool deal. You want to talk about drag and drive? Well, everybody's doing that now with all the sick week and all that. And it would be just a blast to go out and do that with anything, even if you're not super fast, just having fun. Take a couple days and go run one of those. But um, I would think a fifth gen is a pretty heavy car. And if you, it's not a dedicated race car, you'd probably put a, a, a decent cam and some heads and exhaust modifications in it. The 12 and the 10 are completely separate things. Just miles tw- apart. Yeah. Right, right. So the 12 we can kind of go with our, our standard package with that. You don't need heads to do that, but at the same time, you're going to need the cam and springs to do that. If you have an LS3, the cool thing about that one is, is it's already got a great intake manifold on it, so you don't really need to change the right. intake or the throttle body or the ignition, coils, wires, plugs, any of that business. We've got a couple cams. One is some 8710 R1, and another slightly larger one is some 11 uh, 8711 R1. And one is a 230 at 50 cam. The other one's a 234 at 50 cam. And it doesn't sound like a big spread, but they do pretty different things. We don't like to use the stage three and four thing, but we do do everything incrementally. And these are the third and fourth biggest ones. And our fourth level is generally stuff that you know is going to drop in. You're never going to have to have fly cutting. Always check piston to valve, but it's not going to touch a factory piston. Uh, even allows a little bit of head milling, which we're a fan of compression. The 8710, that's the 230 at 50 cam, that dude will make about 467 at the wheels. And that's with a generally like a, some American racing headers or something okay. and a MagnaFlow exhaust. You know, typical Dynojet numbers, it'll make 467 and some really good torque and mid-range. 8711, that's the 234 cam. A lot of people run that because it makes great, great power. And it does. It makes another six or seven horsepower even yet. So it'll be up there in that, you know, say 475 horsepower range. Again, these are numbers anybody can repeat. We don't inflate anything. This is as you drive it, no extra cooling down, no tricks, no fuels, no anything. This is just when you put a part in your car. You go take it to your local, you know, chassis dyno shop, which we heavily recommend doing that. You know, the thing's just going to make the number that we say it will. So with 8711, we're picking up seven horsepower at the wheels, which is great. 
except for losing 15 foot-pounds in the mid-range. And in the mid-range, I'm talking 3,500 RPM. In an automatic car, you probably you might want the smaller you're cam. Gonna, you're going to want that, if not torque. even a step smaller with, like, say, we've got a 222 cam and a 226 cam as well, 8707 and 8. It's great to have a big cam with big horsepower, but if your torque converter is signing on at 2,500 and your engine doesn't sign on until 4,000, you're going to be sitting there waiting, waiting while that other car runs away from you. To get in the 12s with an automatic car, anything you do to lighten that thing up. And the converter. And a, and a higher stall converter for sure. Back in the olden days, 3,500 on the street, that was a big converter, but they weren't lockup converters. Right. The lockup clutch allows you to right. and now you run can the have stall and, and it knock it down when you engage it. Yeah, light throttle. Right. So, yeah. so, so now like 3 or 32 is yeah, building really the heat. getting right. started. So that would be, you know, one thing to definitely do is get the engine up on the cam, so to speak. The other cool thing about um, 8710 versus 11 is it tunes out really, really nice. People want the choppy idle and everything, but if it gives you fits when you're trying to tune it, it gets old real quick. 8710, I, I got to tell you, we, we've got a ton of customers out there that endurance race with it. It's low maintenance, basically. Another cool thing about the ProLS cams is yeah, we are not stressing the valve train. We've designed it around the factory rocker. Uh, trunnion kitted, if it's got any kind of miles on the rockers, the trunnions are a nice thing to have. There's bushing styles and bearings. I like the summit bearing style. The bushing styles don't suffer catastrophic failure, but they do wear. They get, then it's a controlled wear, yeah. yeah it's, it's like a bronze is a, is a great way. It's a bearing surface that wears, yeah. yeah. So, so there, there are, and people are like, ah, don't throw trunnions in it. The reason why these kits exist is because people have, blown their you know stock trainings apart it's you got to remember these cams are like 525 left from the factory or less and now you're going to go ahead and force that thing to open up another you know hundred thousands more than it ever did it's wearing parts inside that trunnion that were never touched before inside that trunnion is a bearing on a race and now those little bearings are hitting a part of a race that it never hit before it's taking an impact there that it never saw in its life so anyway getting back to the 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 fifth gen deal you know, boost it. We are big turbo people here, but a fifth gen, there are some kits to be able to do it. If anybody has a question, uh, and they did, about what turbo kit we put on, you know, Project 1000, On3 is a local company to us. They make a good value line of kits for things, and we figured we're going to be putting this thing in a fourth gen at some point or something tight. Something like that. So yeah. we ordered up a fourth gen turbo kit from them. I think we got the AC compatible one. So, yeah, it's uh, the on three kit was really good for us. Uh, again, we, we did over 100 pulls. On oh, yeah, injector. yeah, and we ran out of injector. We, you know, and we know, we know that our customers and engine builders and racers are going to make more than that. And yeah. we stopped where we did. We wanted to prove that you could buy all those parts and throw them in, a, in an engine in a short block and boost the heck out of it, and it's going to hang in there and run, yeah. and, and it did. So you're getting into the target numbers. So... We were approached about making a thousand horsepower, and him and I are kind of like laughing, right? Because everybody, you know, is making a thousand these days, and you don't need a lot of the parts that we put in this to make that number. But at the same time, everything that we've got is a recipe, right? And if you can get parts from the junkyard, or you've already got them on your motor, save some money. You don't need to buy our coils, but we put it there anyway, just so you knew it. But often, you know, just a set of you know LS9 head gaskets. We do like our head studs, and then just a rod and piston deal is real safe at that number. But the question is, how long, right? Yeah. A lot of people make this number, and they're like, "I made 1,200 horsepower, whatever the number is, stock bottom end." And it's like, yeah, that, that's a grenade. 
and a lot of people are eventually they're going to break, right? They're going to drive over the crankshaft. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's like, what is your time worth to you, right? So I would say at a minimum, this engine needed to have uh, a rod and piston, and uh, I'd have zero issue adding another three or 400 horsepower to the stock crank. Oh, yeah. Uh, the stock crank isn't a point of failure with these things. It will take out bearings before it basically cracks. But what fun is that when you can have a 408 for about the same amount of money? Right. A crank is less than 700 bucks. Right. So the cool thing about cubic inches under something, not that you need it to make that horsepower number, but when you're actually driving something on the street, 50 cubic inches, 50 foot-pounds of torque, it's like the difference of going from a 48 to a, a, a 60. It's drive-around power. It's always going to be there underneath your foot. Uh, it's reliable power. And if you want to talk about it a little bit, it does lower the operating range some, which makes the valve train happy. Well, the, the added cubic inches just brings peak torque down, right? And and then as you lower the operating range, it makes the cam act a little smaller and it makes everything a little happier, I guess, right? You could turn this thing 8,500. You could turn the bottom end 8,500. I have zero issue doing that with the Pro LS crank rod and pistons are rated for that. The problem is, is that your valve train, hydraulic Hydraulics, stuff, yeah, things start getting out of control when you start buzz, buzzing it up there. They, they so, do. You know, yeah. so say 74, 7,500 is really <clears throat> common with an inexpensive spring pack. After 7,500, though, you know, things start getting more exotic, higher spring pressures. Right. And when you put cubic inches under that, you can keep that valve train happy longer. So it's going to make some more power there than it would have. The other thing is, is that we can run huger turbos now compared to what we were going to have to run before to get them to spool. So 50 cubes, I'll tell you, we only had to make 1,000 at the, at the wheels, which is 1,200 at the crank. If you want to see the dyno curve at some point, it made 1,202 horsepower at 27 pounds with those VS Racing 67, 62s. Everything in that thing was sized. The injector was sized for that. The turbo was sized for that. We could have added some 76s to this oh, thing. Yeah. Really, we've got, we've got all kinds of turbo offerings now that we didn't have back then. That <laughs> right. Can, uh, but we, we need to find some time to get that done and uh, blow something up or yeah. rotate the earth, right? So, so, so the other fun thing is, is that we get to blow things up. I don't like to blow stuff up. I love to blow things <laughs> up. Uh, as long as I'm not the guy running the mop. But right. I've blown so many things up. I'm very good with a mop by this <laughs> stage of my life. You know, the other thing is, is again, getting back to the fifth gen. The other really cool thing is just put a supercharger on it. You, know, you just don't want to have any fuss, no muss. Vortex supercharger kit on that dude. You know, Pro Charger, they got some nice stuff. Whipple. There's some other, yeah. it, you know, and it depends on the type of power you want too. Right. If you just want to stomp your foot under it and blow the tires off the things, you know, that, that Whipple or the Eaton, you know, base type of deal from Edelbrock or Magnuson, they'll blow the tires off and the, that's fun until you're trying to hook it up. Yeah. So for that, you know, a lot of my people that I work with, they prefer the power curve of a, of a Sentry and it's easier to control, still makes tons of power. Those kits aren't light. They put a lot of weight on the nose of your car and that's already a heavier car to begin with. And if you like to go around corners, that is another example of, you know, using a, a Sentry versus a Maggie is you know, any weight that you take off the front end is just going to make the thing turn in and handle a little bit better. So if you're in the handling and going around corners, that's another consideration. Plus, you're saving maybe 60 pounds a kit. Oh, probably. Yeah, if I were trying to go tens at a drag and drive, you know, and I wanted to just bolt things together, no fuss, no muss, put a Vortec on More top Vortec of the... Vortec or Portrait or one of them. We've got Richard Hunter. Got a, what size springs would you run on a basically stock 5.3 stage 2 cam, 906 heads and 70 millimeter turbo? 
What size spring should I run on? Stage two cam, 5.3 Stock 5.3 or stage two cam, 706 heads and a 70 millimeter turbo. I would think a dual spring on a turbo. I mean, you could put a 600 lift beehive. Um, I kind of like the extra rate in, in a dual spring myself. Um, All right. I feel that keeps it <laughs> so more secure. He and I are old school where we just thought you had to have a dual spring. I like a dual a spring. Dual, yeah. just for the redundancy. And the problem is, is that when you have a dual, you've got not just one spring, you got two springs, and that's weight. And the worst thing is, is that retainer that could have been, you know, what? An inch in it diameter. Could be, it could be seven grams is now 11. Right, right. So the retainer weight is now huge. And so you've added another spring and a huge amount of, of retainer diameter to that thing. That's why they have titanium. Yeah. <laughs> but I have converted myself to a, a beehive kind of guy. And the reason why is we've got these these uh, six hundred beehives that you know it's it's the pack spring. It, it, they're very good. Um, they don't excellent break. material. They, you know we really don't see failures out of right. them. Right. So so, yeah. so again, this we is we sell thousands a year. This is and very. <laughs> we don't get failures. We just yeah. don't. Right. Yeah, it, it, so. It's one of these things that when you have access to the data and you see the failure rate is nil, it starts making a lot more sense. Once you get rid of redundancy as a, an excuse for running the duels, they start making less and less sense. So yeah, we've got the 630 lift duels as well, which I like those personally, even over the 600 lift. That is a 174.005. Right, that's got one, more rate in it, a little stiffer. All right, a little better back. Story time with Brian. When we did the Pro LS cams originally, we had 600 lift on a lot of them. We had 550 lift on a lot of the truck cams because that's our LS6 spring. But then the 625 lift cams is really the maximum you could use with a factory rocker before the the edge of the rocker scroll starts coming off the end of the stem start to scrub they start, start to, to scrub yeah yeah so we set the biggest cams at 625 lift and we were like okay that 600 beehive isn't going to do we're going to go ahead and, and put duels as our recommendation the 2500 the tfs pack 2500 286 p for polished springs uh we've sold thousands and thousands of those great great spring mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what we ran with all that 625 stuff. So lo and behold, we introduced the 630 lift spring, and we've been using it now for years and now have good data that we feel confidently that we can just go ahead and put our 630 lift on the 625 springs. It happily turns RPM. We had JP out there with the 600 lift beehives turning 70s. <laughs> <laughs> That's an anomaly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, this is uh, one of our friends that uh, bolted our 92 millimeter T4 on it. Awesome turbo, by the way, stock bottom end, and this guy's a lunatic. But he's got our stage four twin turbo cam okay. in it, which we allow a little bit more overlap with the twin turbo T6 cams. And this engine doesn't want to turn off. Yeah, he's, he's letting out of the pedal, and JP does not let off the gas pedal. But the engine was very happy turning RPM because we got great lobes, great springs, lightweight rockers, and it was good. Hey, Brian and Mike, thanks for doing this. I just installed the 8709R1 cam in my 5.3. What kind of bottom end would be bulletproof since I have all the power I could want? 8709 is a treat. So when we were talking about stage four, the 8709, we designed that thing with the intake opening as early as it can be without kissing the piston and the exhaust valve as late as it could be without kissing the piston. So that is the biggest cam that we sell that you don't have to worry about fly cutting a piston. It makes a lot of power, a lot of overlap. It's got 14 plus degrees of overlap in it. That one is awesome and it likes to turn RPM. 
And you, sir, putting that thing at a 5.3, I'm not going to say you're a brave man because you're just going to have to know that this thing is going to want to turn 8,000 RPM. It's just going to want to turn big, that. Yeah. It's just. So what's, uh, he's asking what kind of bottom end would be bulletproof. I mean, well, if you're NA, I would think um, a forged piston and a decent rod is yeah, all you need. That's and really a good, all you really need. good oiling system. So, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing about that. That Gen 4 rod, because of that stroke in that engine, that Gen 4 rod would actually live for a good amount of time. I actually trust the rods to 7,500 for a little while, but you used the word bulletproof. And Mike and I are into that as well. So if it were mine, what I would probably do is run our six and an eighth inch rod with our 5.3 piston. The reason why I'd run that versus the 6098-945 version is it's a little bit lighter. The pin's lighter. So that's a good thing. Neither one of them, neither one really fails at all. Uh, but the nice thing about the Pro LS 5.3 piston is we give you a little tiny dome, little bump on top of that thing that's about 80 thousandths tall to help you recover compression. Because a flat top in a 5.3 is pretty lackluster in terms of compression. If it's a stock 7cc dish, that's even... Terrible or... That's even ter worser. Yeah. Worser, worser. Yeah. So, so we do have a great 5.3 piston with a little bit of a dome bump on it. Give it a little more wind little. and... Uh, and uh, so, so like we'll cubic see. inches, compression is your friend. You're already paying for 92, 93 octane or 91. And if you're already paying for it, why not get the benefit from another half point of compression? They were very, very, I'm not going to use the word stingy from the factory. Conservative. They were conservative because yeah. they knew that people would be out there towing something with their 5.3 and their you know, 1500 Chevy truck. So they were conservative with your compression, knowing that you weren't going to be running good octane and stuff. But you know, put some pop in it. Like 11.0, I would not be worried about running 11.0 compression if I could. Not maybe if I'm towing, I'd drop Dynamic that compression with that cam is going to be not way down anyway. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I'd run 11.0 with that thing all day long. He's got L33, so that's got a flat top in that's it. That's a so, nice, yeah. I love that engine. Uh, we should cover some of the questions people sent in. Sure. First question was, on Project 1000, did you balance the rotating assembly first? We did. We had, we had to send the block out to have it bored, and we just had our, um, had our local shop bore the block 30 over. Our block was actually a, a GM part that was returned in our returns area, and we snagged that for a deal. It had a little surface rust in the cylinder walls that got wet on a shipping dock or something like that. Yeah. So, so we had to take it 30 over. And then uh, threw a crank and rods in it, and while we were there, we just had them spin the assembly. Um, did you use a bolt stretch gauge for the ARP hardware? Yes, we did. We also used a torque wrench and verified bolt stretch. We spent a little time experimenting on that actually so there's an ac delco torque wrench and this thing is a gift from the gods when we first started doing this video that thing was pretty low in popularity right. and we turned it into the number one selling torque wrench at summit and for good reason it'll last you the rest of your life number one but it, it's like excalibur it's, it's tool truck quality so so the cool thing about this wrench is not only is it a digital torque wrench with haptic meaning it vibrates, you know, as you get really close, it's like bop, 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 and it buzzes and beeps and tells you you've arrived at the number. Now that's all cool. What's cooler is, is it tells you the peak foot pound number that it achieved. And if you're doing torque angle that, you know, which we recommend when we're designing and we're honing connecting rods, we're not torquing that thing down to 72 foot pounds or whatever the number is. We are going to seat it at 30 foot pounds and then we're turning that thing 60 degrees or 80 or whatever the number is. And that is round. And that is what we recommend 
uh, is that you use this torque angle to arrive at the proper stretch to make sure that the bores and the pistons are round. Only problem is a lot of people don't have the torque angle wrench. So being the nice guys that we are, we did a big torque study and we found out that that's 82 foot-pounds of torque. The bolts are very repeatable. They are ARP 2000s. The machining quality is awesome. And it wasn't 80 foot-pounds. It wasn't 85. It was 82. So hopefully your 82 is the same as my 82. With lube? With lube. And yeah, so 82 foot-pounds was the number. We've got Prolos rods have a couple different bolt lengths, a 1400 and a 1600. Uh, they've got different uh, stretch factors for each one. So they've got a different foot-pound and torque angle number. But yeah, it's when you use a nice tool, buddy, I'm not trying to sell you stuff you don't need, but just buy it. I mean, it's, have it's, it. it's awesome yep. stuff. I mean, it, had I invested in some of this stuff when I was 20, 25 years old, it would have been... They didn't have that when you were 25 years old. Well, it's true. They didn't have it. I had the beams type. All right. So here's a fellow. He says, what crank bearings did you use and what size rod bearings did you use? We used the um, Clevite 77 or the... The H bearing, we used a cleavite H bearing in there, yeah. And I believe we had to do the, the X bearings to gain a little extra clearance there. So it was a little snug when we first mocked it up. So, so. we love a 10296 melling oil pump. I use that stuff and everything. So, so an H bearing, uh, we put this thing together, what we thought was fairly tight um, in terms of clearance, and we had triple digit oil pressure. Right. The first time out. And so after we saw that, we're like, you know what? We're just going to put X's in this thing. And we had to back off on a pump, too. We did. We did yeah, the 10295. We, we started off with the 103.55 pump. And the 103.55 is designed for AFM. And if you're running really loose clearances, the 103.55 might be the way to go. But what we found was we backed out on the pump and ran X's. X, if I haven't mentioned it, X is 1,000s, right? One extra. One extra. And so instead of that typical two thousandths or one eight being point zero zero one eight, that's one thousandths and eight tenths for machine to speak, the X's would add one thousandths worth of clearance to that, which is pretty standard for a performance engine. Again, we weren't lacking for oil pressure and things tweak. I mean, as many foot pounds of torque as we had going through that, people got to remember 1100 foot pounds of torque on this thing. That's trying to tear your motor mounts off the side of the block. That's why you run motor plates on some of these things, right? That's going through your motor mounts, and that is putting a lot of tweaking on your block. And those clearances that you start off with static when you're building something on an engine We're trying stand. to bend the crankshaft in half every time the piston fires, right? <laughs> right, so. right. Exactly. We like torque. Here's another question. I'd love to know what the build cost is. I'm thinking of my, for my 2001 VET, I do some autocross. This was not an inexpensive engine because we built everything, everything, everything brand new. But the rotating assemblies are 2600 Yeah, they're not bad. Something like that. So we also don't go chintzy on the parts we throw into that. That's a Clevite H bearing. It's not some no-name bearing. Uh, that is a great Made in America ring pack that we use with those things. I would say that motor was probably with heads and gaskets, fasteners, valve train, pushing close to twelve dollars or $15,000. Right. Yeah. And the turbo... Kit. Now that's where a lot that of was a lot of cost in a turbo. Kit right too. now that's where that's where things get. If you're a fabricator, really you can probably save some a lot of money on that stuff. Thousands yeah. and thousands of bucks. But if you've got good functioning coils, use good functioning coils. You don't have to buy everything brand new. Reuse as much as you right. can. But 
you know, you want to tell them what we found with coils? Well, on the coils, we had a, it was a stock GM coil, I believe, right? It might have been at one of our summit aftermarket coils, but once we started to reach extreme cylinder pressures, we started having misfires and breaking up and all that. We actually had to take the spark plug gap down to... Uh, 14. Like, yeah, I was going to say 15, under 20 thousandths to, to keep it firing. One cool thing that I'd like to go back to the dyno and try is we now have our own Summit IGM 1X type smart coils, and uh, I'd love to try those out on that engine and see, yeah. uh, see how much gap we could get away with with that guy. It, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so, so the power curve on the engine on the dyno, it was going up and up and up like that, and then it took a dip... And then it would come up like a little curlicue at the very end of that thing. And if you looked at the torque, it was flatlining. That spark was only going to jump that amount of gap with that amount of cylinder pressure. And so as cylinder pressure came down, it allowed the spark to come back. And it was allowed to make more power at the very end as cylinder pressure decreased. And the fix for that was just tightening up plug gap, which you never know that stuff until you're on the dyno. Cool lessons to learn, right? Cool lessons. I mean, yeah. it, to try to do this at the track. Oh, my gosh. Figure that out and making a pass at a time. It could have been my torque converter. Right. It could have yeah. been this. It could have been. Gosh, no. There, there are, you know, we have, we have a good friend here. We've got a couple local chassis dyno shops that do great work. We uncover so much stuff on the dyno over there. It's ridiculous. Uh, a lot of it is fuel related. You know, these fuel pumps and everything we use, I mean, they're great pumps. But, you know, you're just not going to know what's going on until you have a wide band O2 stuffed up the, the pipe on this thing to know that everything is working as it should. And that's stuff you're not going to find out at the track easy. Mm-hmm. And here's the other question, like, why a stroker? And why not? We had to buy a crank anyway. So. We had to buy a crank anyway. So, yeah, we, we kind of got into it a little bit ear- earlier. It's like, you know, 408 cubic inches, you know, it's another 50 cubic inches, right? It just, it's not a bad thing to have more power. Again, able to size a turbo ridiculously large uh, with that. And, and again, you know, you're lowering you know, your RPM range. So if you had a 5.3 or a 6.0 wanting to turn 8,000 and your cam and springs are signing off, you're never going to see the benefits of that versus we put a bigger stroke under that, use that air earlier, and those valve train parts go back to happy land and you see the power gains there, not from the cubic inches necessarily, but just because the valve train is more stable. earlier, yeah. Yep. Um, when finding the right pushrod length, why did you add 70 thousandths to it, and how do you come up with that number? You did that, I don't recall. Oh, I did that. All right, so we've got LS7 Delphi lifters, and people talk about lifters, LS7 lifters and, and that. So the original LS7 lifters have not been made for a long, long time. Delphi makes all the really, really good ones. And the problem is Delphi's as of late have got a reputation for being not great. And the problem is there's a lot of unscrupulous fellows that call them Delphi lifters and they are not. They are junk. And people put them in their engines and they don't operate well. And then they're like, but I had Delphi LS7s in it. No, you didn't. And we know that because we know how much they cost and we know where we sell them at and they are value priced. You can trust a Brian Tooley LS7 lifter or a Summit. We know what they cost. We know where they need to be priced. And if you're buying something significantly less than we're selling it for, it's probably not legit. Not the real thing, right? Right. And the problem, you know, lifters are the most finely machined part in the entire engine. Tens of a thousand. Yeah, that plunger clearance is uh, yeah, it's, really tight. It's critical, right? And, um, you know, even when it's right, it's, it's hard to make them right. But, again, Mike and I have access to the data to see failure rates and warranty rates on all this stuff. And I have zero issue running a Summit Delphi lifter and all these things. 
So going back to a Delphi lifter, what makes the LS7 kind of cool? A lot of lifters might have a couple hundred thousandths worth of plunger travel. A genuine Delphi LS7 is 166 thousandths. I know that because I measured it. And we put that plunger roughly halfway in the middle of that. You could run anywhere from 70 to 100 uh, worth of preload on that. The benefit to doing that is the less oil you have in that lifter, the less it aerates. And when the less it aerates, the more net lift you have with it at high RPM. So you have to be a little careful with that though, uh, how much preload you put into it. But yeah, that 70 number, 50 to 70 is what we recommend for pretty much anybody, anybody that is, you know, roughly one turn of a, the rocker stud there, rocker bolt. But you could go a little bit more with that if you really want to get good. And how much force is needed to crank the assembly? He just installed his summit rods and pistons and it takes 65 foot pounds to spin with no heads on. You, sir, have a problem. Sounds like something's off. Light yeah. hone or uh, something. I don't know. That's, uh, that's really high. We spun that at, what, 25 foot-pounds, 22 foot-pounds? It was fairly light for yeah. a street motor. So. Yeah, and, and so we, we call this breakaway torque because a lot of us don't have fish scales or any of that business. But if you take your short block built with the rings, with the pistons, with the crank, and it really depends on what oil you've got on the, the mains as well when you're putting this thing together. If you assemble it with a no oil or very, very light oil, not break-in lube, you know, 13 would be kind of a normal number for a street engine, meaning that you'd be like, turn, 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 and boom, that rotating assembly would start to, to spin. And you look back at that peak and hold number on your torque wrench, and that's about 13 foot-pounds of torque with a standard set of standard tension rings in the thing. There are dwell points on pistons at TDC where they're up and down on the bore, and that applies leverage to the thing. So you have to do that test a few times. But I think, yeah, on our engine, it was about 22, 23 foot-pounds of torque, and that was with uh, real break-in lube Thick, on the main. Thick, gooey. Thick, yeah. gooey, sticky yeah. stuff. Also, we do like lower tension rings, uh, but not too low with boost. And frankly, most of our engines that we build, you know, Pro-LS pistons for are going to see boost or nitrous. And oil and does bad, you know, things, it causes detonation. So we run a standard tension oil uh, with our ring packs. Not to say that that's old school 316s or 564s type stuff. Uh, in terms of tension, it has something to do with unit loading. So it is lower tension, but it's still considered standard for a modern vehicle. Uh, so we, we're running standard tension rings in that. And yeah, if you've got 65, something is locked up. And you know we furnish these rotating assemblies with standard bearings. And that's cool if your block is truly what we call on the split. There's the housing bores in these blocks, the main bores. They've got a range. It's either a little big, a little small. When you torque the bolts, those bores get small, and there goes your bearing clearance, and things get tight. And you're never going to know that until you put a dial bore gauge on something with a transfer mic. You should be able to spin it, and it should keep going once you... You start, once you take your hands off of it, it should spin a half, three quarters of a turn, nice and smooth. If it spins, as you rotate it, it wins. If, it, if, you, if you're spinning it and it stops when you let go of it, it's not a, right. you got an issue. A high spot in a bearing or a, or a part that's out of alignment or a cap that's crooked or something. You've got to know yeah, what backwards it is. Cap. Right. There's something, right? And it's got to be found. And so, yep. again, getting back to these engine building tools, back in 2018, we did not have a dial bore gauge that went down to a tenth of a thousandths. 
and the best one was only good to a half of a thousandth, and that's not good enough for engine building. So we, again, set the price on kill on a really killer dialboard gauge. It goes uh, to set. a tenth, yep. We've got it goes those, down to a tenth yep. of a thousand, so that's point zero 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 one. Sounds like a really small number, but in engine building world, that's, that's standard. Um, okay, here's some fun ones. Uh, I thought you were supposed to put the bearings in dry. I never heard of that before. That was on a cam bearing video we did. It was. Um, and I put a little assembly lube on there just to keep it from drawing a burr and, and scoring the back of the bearing real bad. So, uh, I'll, so putting something in dry, I, you know, you could do it. But anybody that would ever tell you, like, oh, you put oil behind a bearing and somehow it's going to magically slip and fall out or something, that would be ridiculous. Put oil on the backs of your bearings. It makes them go in nice and tidy. They go in without cocking or doing anything bad Sometimes or getting they're so burrs. tight anyways. They're, they're just, tight, yeah. right? Even with our really super awesome $80 uh, cam bearing knocker, it takes some, some work to get that done. So put a little lube on it. Um, can the cam bearings be pushed in or out of the way, like there's no tape or anything in the cam board to do this, if you overshoot from installing them? Yes, sir. Yeah, they, they basically will pop out the opposite side. You pick it out with your fingers and start all over again. So Hard to do once an engine's assembled. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> do your cam bearings before you put in your rotating assembly. I guess if you're trying to put cam bearings, all right, so this is a big deal. LS cam bearings, Again, sorry to my Some of these 175,000-mile engines are, are shot. nasty. Yeah. So the problem is, is that, you know, an old-school small-block Chevy, you know, you never saw cam bearings come out of an engine looking as shot as an LS cam bearing does. But the engines run forever compared to a small-block either. Like, right. you used to get 100,000 miles, and you ran a carburetor and washed down the cylinder, so you never saw cam bearings go. But all these LS engines run for 200-plus thousand miles, the cam bearings wear out, and then here's the problem. You've got a cam bearing that's down to copper, and you're like, well, that's not good, but is it going to run? It might run. The other problem is, is then people go to stick their LS2 timing chain on it. we got a $22 timing chain. Again, never breaks. I don't want to sell you anything else because this wonderful little $22 part lasts forever. It's great. But it's got a little bit of wobble, 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 wobble in it. Why is that? Well, it doesn't do it on a new block, but it somehow does it on this old engine. So mm -hmm. we, we tested uh, bearing clearances on one of these engines that was a 200,000-mile engine. This thing looked awesome. The, the rod bearings, the main bearings, we did this with uh, uh, Coverman 66 Terry, mm -hmm. Terry LSX, mm -hmm. if, you, if you know him. And we took apart his engine and checked this stuff. And this engine was super well-treated, probably fleet maintenance or something like that. But it... It looked awesome inside, but the cam bearings had 8,000 clearance to it. And if you think about that, that cam is now 4,000 closer to the crank. All right. What that means is that you need to run that 5,000 line honed chain set. They have these things called line honed <laughs> chain sets for any of the old we school We sell guys. the upper sprocket in 5 and 10,000 undersize. That was my idea. Oh, I know. It's pretty slick. Actually, it <laughs> so, works well. Again, try not to rip you off if you don't need it, because who wants to have to pull a lower sprocket off of uh, off the thing, right? But yeah, we came out with a 5 and 10,000 line honed sprocket. You know, same number of teeth count. It just increases the diameter slightly to accommodate for worn cam bearings and stuff to bring that, that uh, chain back into the proper tension range to get rid of all that slop. Um, what else? Okay, 
don't LS engines need thinner piston rings, which helps reduce friction and increase power? I know I've seen it, I've tested and proven, and I thought I heard of that. And yeah, we, we talked about that. That was one of the features that when GM built those engines, they yeah. added the thinner ring that seemed to improve uh, yeah. a lot of that stuff. It, it's so big. I mean, they've got gas mileage targets, right? right? And friction is heat, and it's reduced gas mileage, and it's wear. So again, yeah, we run that one, two, one, two, three millimeter ring on almost everything, all the Forge Pro pistons except for the big blocks. Yeah. And those, we went with the 15153. And for people that don't know, 15153, that has the same basic thickness of a 16th ring, but from the face of it to the inner, the back of it, uh, that's radial wall, it's reduced quite a bit, and that takes a ton of tension out of that ring. Uh, so a lot less wear, a lot less friction, and still get a long, long life out of the thing. All right, does the dot on the second piston ring face up or down? I know the dot on the oil ring faces down, but the second ring, I've never seen that. But the second ring also has a dot. You so, need to follow your instructions on that because it might have a dot, it might have a bevel. Um, a lot of rings, including a lot of ours, they don't even have a dot anymore. And that's because the ring can be put in either which way. It's actually designed to go either which way. Okay. And that's a little bit of a problem because it's like, if you're like him and me, we just grew up with, even if it didn't need a dot, it had a dot just to solve the problem. Sometimes they got a bevel on the backside or something right, like that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so dot's up. If you got a dot, put it up. Um, what do I do if the oil ring stops the piston from going up and down on the bore? I don't want to file because it's close or something. All right. Oil rings. Ring in gap on an oil ring isn't commonly checked. We usually open up that gap quite a bit so you never have to file an oil ring. Generally, like 11 thousandths or something would be pretty common on an oil ring wiper gap. And that one does not have to be really loose. And the reason why is your top ring is the one that sees almost all of the direct heat. Your second ring sees a little bit less heat. And the oil ring is bathed in you know, engine oil, which is, you know, 270, 290 degrees at most. It's going to cool it very right. well. Right, it cools yeah. that ring, so it never does get hot. So if you've got less than 10 thousandths worth of wiper gap, I guess you should open that up. But in general, you shouldn't find that. It's good to check it. It's hard to square it up because any kind of a feeler gauge you run in it, it's going to be touchy to do that. But by and large, most people aren't going to have to file. Um, here's, a, here's a fun one. Please, is there a way to file and measure a journal uh, on the main with the engine in the car? Not that I know. Mm, you could plastic gauge it, get close, maybe. Um, it's, all, it's the only way I would know. All right. Um, so please elaborate on the rocker bolt rotation and lifter plunger. Again, that's mathematical, so the thread count per inch is really what determines your, your plunger travel. That one turn, pretty common you know, for people to use that number. Luckily, a is lot of an M8 by 125 thread, mm -hmm. I believe. So, however many, so it's 1.25 millimeters per. Uh, so, so 1.25 threads per millimeter, so, right? So the the thing so. is, is just go ahead and buy the fancy dancy Mike Scano designed pushrod length checker. I think that's about 55 thousandths if you convert it over. That would be the awesome tool you use. The cool thing about that is, is that say you have some short travel lifters from Morel or Comp or us. <laughs> Those things might have 33 thousandths worth of total travel in them, and you're trying to get that thing roughly halfway in between. It is twitchy trying to hit that number exactly. And 
anytime that you have two different lifts on your cam, like say a lot of our LS cams have 625 lift on the intake lobe or 605 on the exhaust, well, the base circle's shorter. So the, the lifter's actually farther down, uh, excuse me, on the high lift lobe than it is on the exhaust. So we've actually got two different push rods. My personal engine, my LS7, I've got four different push rods in the thing, one for each bank and one for the intake and the exhaust because I've got two thousandths worth of variance on one side of the deck versus the other, but I'm trying to hit that number down to 19 thousandths. And without this awesome pushrod link checking tool, that is a very hard thing to get right. So that is a tool, if you're gonna be building LS engines, I'd highly recommend that. Um, question for anyone, he's manually trying to turn the crank by hand and there's some light resistance. I have that and just a tiny bit hesitating. We talked about that a little bit. Outside of a pro stock engine or a NASCAR engine, you're not really gonna be able to turn the snout of a crank by hand when you've got rods and pistons on it and rings. So uh, with that, we've talked about that, that breakaway torque value where it's not spinning, it's not spinning, and it finally starts to spin. You look at your handy dandy AC Delco uh, peak number there and it achieved 18 foot pounds or 14. That would be how you know that you're, you're right there in the zone, right? Uh, of where we would expect. If it's 23, if you got a big old small or big block with a rope seal on the back, that could be 30 foot pounds of torque trying to get that thing horked over with 564 yeah. rings. So that's why we like a modern ring pack, even on those older engines. Even 16th, 16th, 16th yeah, rings still have terrible. a lot of, lot of drag. Yeah. But again, if you're assembling this thing and you put one rod and piston on this thing and it's six, you put another one on, it's eight. You put another one on and it's 10, boom. And you put another one on and it's 20. It's like, whoa, something just happened. This is a way for you to gauge what's going on in terms of your ro rotating assembly to try to find like, is this thing out of the norm? And if it is, I really need to go back in and find out why. And I might have to spend some more money on cool tools to do it. <laughs> so we've had a great time here. Um, again, thank you for joining us here today and talking about Project 1000. The second half of part two video is where we really take the engine over to the dyno. We put the intake manifold on it, the injectors, the coil packs. We, we run the thing in on the dyno. We're checking plugs, making sure we got fire in every hole. We got good oil pressure. All of our turbo lines are great and run well and not leaking oil anywhere. So we did our first pulls on that thing. Do you want to just, we've not had a twin turbo engine on that particular dyno up until that engine was on the dyno. So you right. want to talk about what those guys ran into over there? Well, they, um, yeah, we started to really build some torque and we ended up having uh, overheating issues on a, on a dyno water and boiling the, we actually boiled the water in the, in the break and we had to make some, they had to make some adjustments and, and learn right. how to handle that kind of power. And then actually we had to shorten up the, the run time because it was making so much heat. Um, so, what we, did? we went from like a 3000 RPM sweep to like a 2500 RPM sweep or something. Just yeah. To, so, so we, we wanted to see like what kind of torque, like when these turbos were going to come on. So we, we used a, a VS Racing uh, 6762, and that dude had a 67 millimeter compressor wheel. That was V-band. Was it T4? No, I think it was V-band on that thing. So on the 67 millimeter inducer, we started off with 62s, which are small. And he's now got 66 and 68 millimeter uh, turbine wheel options, but these happen to have a 62. 
67 millimeter is right sized for a 408 making this type of power, but a 62 millimeter turbine is not. Uh, that's a heck of a lot of cubic inches. <coughs> and again, it, those last few pounds of boost to hit that 1202 number, you could just see the, the pipes, they were glowing red. Maybe get into that a little bit. I mean, yeah, pipes glow red anyway, but the, the turbine was, on that. It was running was, out of turbine. It was yeah. running out of yeah. turbine, right? And a lot of people don't really think about this thing, but they, they think about turbos by inducer size. They really need to start thinking about turbos by exducer size. What is basically meaning on the, on the turbine side? They really need to realize that unless they can get it out of the turbo, what they're trying to press in on the, on the compressor side isn't flowing. It's mass flow through the engine, and that is an indicator of boost. So when you put a higher flowing hot side on this thing, your boost may drop, but you're going to be making more power. So that's why 18 pounds of boost on your Honda Civic is very different than 18 pounds of boost on something with a T6, a big, big, big turbine. dump truck turbo, right? Right. So at any rate, we were trying to, as soon as the Dyna was going to be able to catch this thing, we wanted to get some torque numbers down to 2,500. And that wasn't going to happen because when we'd start loading this thing in, those turbos would go, and they were in boost now. And it was putting so much, and we didn't have any timing on those early runs either. Right. I mean, we were putting so much power and torque through this thing at low RPM that we were boiling the water in the, the brake on yeah. the dyno. And when the, the water on the brake boils, it can't hold anymore. And it would go woo like that and you'd lose away. control of the motor. Yeah. And our friend Joel was very quick on the throttle stick over there to be able to catch it. It's pretty exciting to watch. But what we ended up having to do is go pretty light on the boost and timing at 3,500 RPM, even really, really light. We were making 1,136 foot-pounds of torque. Something like that, yeah. At 3,500, it was ridiculous. But even at 3,500, we couldn't do a real sweep because this thing wants to spin 7,000 or more. So we would start the pull later on in life. I think it ended up starting at 4,500, 4, something right. like that, go 45 to 7 or whatever. Just to give yeah. the water you know, enough time to control it that we could see what that peak number was. But yeah, we've never had a dyno pull where we could really push the, the bottom of the curve and the top of the curve at the same time. Turbo horsepower numbers are kind of new for us too. We had an aversion to that when we first started doing this gig because you could take any of these turbos and put them on a 2JZ and they're gonna do one thing. You go put that on a 454 and it's gonna do another right. thing. And the smaller engine is actually gonna be the one that makes more power until it blows up. So what we did, because uh, people have been asking for horsepower ratings, we're like, okay, we gotta do this. So we settled in on a 5.3 or 6 liter LS engine, because that is 90% of the people who are buying these turbos from Summit Racing. And the other thing is, is that, you know, what transmission is a guy going to be running behind these things? They're going to be running a Turbo 400, and they're going to be running a loosey-goosey stall on it. So these horsepower ratings are going to be numbers that you are going to be able to replicate on your 5.3 or 6.0 without any weirdness A lot of exotics. No, exactly. Lot of exotic these are parts. really bargain you know, engines, just like a rod, a piston, a cam and spring type of deal, nothing exotic. So these horsepower ratings that we've got on these turbos now, you're going to be able to hit that like no problem. The other thing is, is that a lot of people don't talk about this, but it's really easy to mismatch a turbine and compressor and really overspin a compressor uh, in the search for power. And that can really kill reliability. We will not match a turbine 
to a compressor, that's a big mismatch that's gonna cause reliability and shaft overspeed. You just don't do it. You know, it's, it's not worth your time or ours to have to deal with parts that are breaking. All right, rock and roll guys. Thank Thanks. you very much for joining us. I'm out. I'm out. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.